and welcome to The Two View, the cutting-edge educational show for PAs and nurse practitioners in emergency medicine and urgent care. My name is Mike Sharma. I'm a practicing emergency medicine and urgent care PA in the Dallas, Texas area, and an adjunct professor of PA studies. With me, as always, is Martha Roberts. Martha, hello. Hi. How's it going, Mike? I'm Martha Roberts. I am an emergency nurse practitioner, and I am in Northern California. As we record this, we are getting ready for Thanksgiving and our retrospective households. Mike, how's it looking over there? You know, we've got the most important parts done, the pie list. So far, we have cherry pie, pumpkin pie, chocolate pie. We're looking at a solid two to one person to pie ratio. Really nice metrics there. Our goal is to say above a one to one on that. Wow. I don't even know what to say to that. That's like really ridiculous because <laughs> it's so short and sweet over here. I ordered my meal for delivery. Yes, less than $150 and it comes with a turkey and I'm super excited about that. We did that for a couple of years when I was like either working or I was, you know, whatever, uh, busy with, with military stuff. Well, speaking of important traditions, we're bringing one back for 2024. It's the advanced Emergency Medicine Boot Camp live and in person July 10th through 12th at Planet Hollywood in a lovely Las Vegas, Nevada, with a pre-course day on July 9th for workshops on EKG and imaging interpretation. Two very important skills to master as like an advanced EM clinician. It's just so powerful to be uh, able to do a competent EKG interpretation, like within minutes of a patient hitting your door, recognizing findings that can trigger emergent consults uh, or treatments, or, you know, with imaging, you can be like acting on imaging findings instead of waiting like hours sometimes for a radiologist to opine. Martha, what are you looking forward to as far as the emergency medicine, uh, the advanced course coming back? So I've been looking a lot at our syllabus and we've been talking a lot about the lectures that are coming and and really tweaking and, and revamping a lot of the content, which I think is really cool. We're making it even more current. We're hoping that we can predict the future here, right? So <laughs> I think the the most important thing for me personally attending as someone who's practiced for a long time is doing that EKG course again. So really getting mm. my basics down again, you know, reviewing, be like, oh yeah, I know that. Okay. Yeah. I remember that. And then adding in all these new interesting things that I've never really taken a deep dive into. So really excited about that, mostly because it's a selfish reason of me wanting to know my own cardiac waves and what they're doing. So you have a vested self-interest in being very good at EKG interpretation, as we talked about in the last podcast. Well, right. a new appreciation for every patient that comes in with palpitations, certainly. <laughs> I've told Rick and Diane that I have been uh, doing a lot of teaching with PA programs and and talking to a lot of conferences about EKG interpretation, kind of the, the basic stuff is all and also kind of new literature. So, uh, you know, who knows? If I play my card rights. You might know the instructor for that EKG workshop. We'll see how that goes. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> well, it's time for our first segment, The Wet Read, where Martha and I get 60 quick seconds or so to talk about something that caught our eye. Martha, I'm sad to report that the latest news of a U.S. transmission of a weird disease is in your neck of the woods. Mm. This past month, the health department in Long Beach, California, announced for the first time ever two local cases of dengue fever in people with no history of travel. Now, dengue is a viral illness transmitted by the 80s mosquito. The textbook syndrome, if things stay minor, is about a week of fever, myalgia and arthralgias, some head stuff like headache and retroorbital pain, 
and some spontaneous bleeding or signs of like easier bleeding, like, you know, bruising easier, petechiae, purpura. The aches and pains can be pretty bad, hence the really compelling nickname of the disease, break bone fever. Um, sounds like something from 80s uh, hip hop. But anyways, uh, a more severe form of the infection is dengue hemorrhagic fever. The key diagnostic feature there is a 20% or more rise in hematocrit above baseline. So like, why would that be hemorrhagic fever rise in hematocrit? That would be from hemoconcentration because you're leaking plasma because your vessels are so permeable. There are some serologic tests you can do to further lock in the diagnosis. The treatment, mainly supportive. Let's give fluids. Let's give blood products if needed. And if you're going into shock, there is specific organ support as needed. Of course, in bleedy patients like these, you'd want to avoid NSAIDs and aspirin. So it's acetaminophen and uh, non-NSAID treatments for all the pain and fever. There is a treatment on the horizon an antiviral pill, but we're still really early in the stages of development and testing there. We'll have the links to the announcements from the local health departments about this disease, which has also been known to spread locally in Florida, Hawaii, Texas, and Arizona. So I'll be looking on that for myself on our website, twoview.fireside.fm. That's the number, twoview.fireside.fm. Yeah, you know, that dengue fever, it's a real bummer. Like, that's, that's honestly... What a that stinks. I'm looking, you know, I'm, I'm reviewing pictures of the rash that you see. And I suggest that everyone does that when they get a chance to take a look at that typical rash seen in dengue fever. Yeah. One of the things, you know, we're doing, um, you know, BPs on everybody that comes in, right? Like, and this person will be diagnosed as what, what does that sound like? Oh, you've got a fever and some body aches. You're going to have the patient that has chief complaint of flu-like illness, right? Mm -hmm. And then um, one of the things we see is this tourniquet sign. So basically where you have the blood pressure cuff squeezing their arm and everyone goes, ow, ow, ow. You can actually see some petechia at the site of the BP cuff because of the hemorrhagic nature of disease. So that's something you can kind of have them pull up their arms and take a look at that. That can be a clue that there's something more than just, uh, you know, your, your standard uh, viral URI. I love how the skin responds to illness and so many different illnesses and so many different um, infections and things like that. So the specific rash to this, so the rash of dengue fever in the acute stage of the infection blanches when you press it. And then the rash that commonly forms during the recovery has these classic islands of white and a sea of red. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's really a fascinating look at Dengue and certainly check out those photos. So I'm going to slide, um, you know, right into our next topic. And I want to start off my segment by talking a, a short chat about penis pain. So it won't take long, I promise. So recently, believe it or not, I don't know what's going on, but I've had an influx of male patients come to the ER with a chief complaint of penis pain. And we've had several residents and students and PPAs, nurses, all kinds of people um, talking about what's the best way to interview these patients. And I'll tell you, even seasoned, um, older clinicians, I listen to some of the way that, uh, that they approach the patient and it just is, it's so not nice and it's not comforting. So I wanted to give you some tips about penis pain and talk a little bit more about some common diagnoses in these patients. Um, so you're prepared. You're not just giving uh, just just the tips, right? You're giving more than just the tips here. I'm going to I'm going to give more. I'm going to okay. I'm going to give the whole thing. So oh. the first pearl, okay, 
is to stay in a private area. And it's really hard, right? So it's the holidays and we're super crowded. So don't be like, oh, I can just do this. Just quickly, just, le- just let me take a peek. Like, no, no, no. Private area. And then, of course, absolutely have a chaperone. The key to a good penis and testicular physical exam, as always, is that history done right. I mean, if you've been listening to us for, if you're a a seasoned follower of us, you know that I really believe in the physical exam. But in this particular instance, the history is even more important because you want to do that literally to the end of the history, as far as you can possibly go before you take a look. And you don't want to be asking questions while their pants are down, while they're shivering under a sheet. Um, Like, does this hurt? Like, how long has it been going on for? Like, that's just not appropriate. So before we even remind you of the top causes of penis pain, it's important that you ask the questions right off the bat. These ones are really important. Is the penis pain with or without discharge? How long and was it sudden or gradual? Do you have a history of trauma, surgeries, cancer, or piercings? Then I like to add on the any itching, sores, lesions, history of HIV, and here's the kicker. Once I go through all those questions, I go and I say this very specific particular phrase. And I'm going to say it the same way I say it to patients. So I've, you know, same tone, same inflection. Just some other questions we ask all people that come to our ER. And some of these are specific to male-born patients with a penis. What um, I would also like to ask is that during our diagnosis and workup today, I want to ensure that no one is hurting you in your home. And have you ever been a victim of sexual abuse? Have you ever had an STD like gonorrhea or herpes? Have you put anything in your penis or injured the penis in any way? Do you have sex with men, women, or both? And then at the end, I like to add a totally random question so it sort of ties it all together. Finally, do you have any pain when you urinate or any discharge at any time? And that kind of just like loops everything together. So I tend to do that because... You don't want to sit down and change the way that you're talking to a patient about any specific topic sensitive to their genitalia. And I know you know what I mean, right? So you don't want to be like, okay, like I have to ask these like, you know, really sensitive questions right now. I'm like, do you have sex with men, women, or both? Like just, just don't just gloss over all the questions in one tone, one inflection. Don't make it weird. Don't laugh even if the patient laughs, because you know, some of these patients are like, I'm heterosexual, or my girlfriend is sitting right here, or, um, you know, they don't necessarily understand why we're asking these questions. And I see clinicians inappropriately interview patients all the time with genitalia complaints, and we need to be more professional. And to me, this is the way to do it. Again, just my opinion. I'm always looking for improvement. So if you have uh, something you think is good, write us and let us know. Um, the most important thing, I, I don't care who you are, the chaperone, super, super important. And do a short time. You don't need to do a long exam. Short exam, cover the patient back up, let them ask more questions before you leave. So it's not awkward, okay? And then... I also like to reassure patients, everything looks normal. I didn't see any sores or lesions. Or if something was abnormal, I say, did you notice this lesion? Did you notice this area? Would you like to see it? And I help them um, uh, either self-examine or they'll say, yes, I noticed that. 
So yeah, this takes practice, just like all important things in life, practice, practice, practice. And finally, I promised the top causes of penis pain here. So, okay, pain in males in the penis or the testicles, we know could be a UTI, a, a renal stone, certainly an STI or STD. Those are the most common causes up front. Yeah, and and you know since we're in the neighborhood, uh, testicular torsion is a thing that's less commonly felt as penis pain, but sometimes the pain is just so like terrible and crushing in that neighborhood. People can kind of like perceive it certain ways. Um, there's also penis trauma, a fractured penis. You know, sometimes people have had again surgeries or been especially vigorous, whatever use of the penis that they prefer to have, and so that can cause problems. Not not very common, but it is a thing. You know, like the um, there are structures that can be damaged that can cause severe swelling. Uh, of course, infections like abscess, cellulitis hernia, uh, prostatitis, paraphimosis, or balanitis, you know, try your best to kind of uh, have them zero in on the pain. Like, is it really, is it penis pain? Is it pain to the rectum? Is it in that area between the scrotum and the rectum, the perineum? Where do you feel the pain the worst? And that can help you a little bit and help the patient too. Again, that's why I think it's so important when you're about to examine these patients that you get a better history before you go right in and do your exam. I'm telling you, you don't want to be asking a lot of questions while you're examining the genitalia. First of all, it's very distracting for the patient and they're not going to be able to answer you and you're just going to have to ask it again. So the other thing I want to remind people, again, it's hard to know, is this pain in my testicles, my my scrotal area? Like, is it, is it actually in the rectum? Is it in the penis? It could be referred pain. It's it's a sensitive area. But what's what's interesting is that we remember the primary syphilis lesions, right? They're small and painless open sores, right? So we can see them all over the genitals, but they're painless. What I often ask is, have you noticed any swelling or enlargement in the groin area when they have a, a lesion like this? Because it's very common to have enlarged lymph nodes mm. with the uh, primary stage of syphilis. Hey, well, we have a link to another reason for penis pain, Peyronie's disease, in the show notes for those of you who need a refresher on that. Peyronie's disease is characterized by curvature in the penile shaft, often preceded by some sort of painful erections and an area of fibrosis that may be palpable on exam. This medical issue can put people at higher risk for penile fracture. And, uh, and yeah, that's a thing you should look for as well. Ask about kind of a history of preceding penile issues. Yeah. I also threw in a really cool case study of a 21-year-old male with penis pain, dysuria, discharge, and a new sexual partner. That's a lot going on. So we'll call that an ROS pan positive. Martha, I had a really small opinion on this topic when you first told me about it, but I got to say it grew on me. I'm so glad I could help. Well, next, it's dry scan, where we penetrate a little deeper into two other topics. Everyone's got their favorite anti-emetic medication. If yours is promethazine, trade name Fendergan, got some bad news for you. Many of the injectable forms of that medication are on nationwide shortage. It's expected to last into early 2024. You know, maybe it's for the best. The Institute for Safe Medication Practices recommended in 2018 years ago that an injectable promethazine be removed from all areas of the hospital. 
because of serious tissue injuries and even amputations that come from accidental arterial injection or extravasation leaking of an IV injection of injectable promethazine. So already kind of like one foot in the grave with this medication. Let's talk more about vomiting and think about other antiemetics that you can be uh, knowledgeable about so you can be ready when the next medication shortage hits. First, some A&P, there's two major parts of the brain involved in the vomiting reflex. One is the chemoreceptor trigger zone, or CTZ, a part of the brain outside of the blood-bane barrier. Why is that important? Well, that means things in the blood or in the CSF can affect this CTZ. The other major part is the vomiting center. By the way, that sounds like a, the worst department store <laughs> in the world. Where'd you get that purse? Oh, you know, I got it from the vomiting center. Uh, I, I digress. The vomiting center gets input from a lot of places, the vestibular system, the pharynx, the GI tract, other parts of the brain. So when you're riding the tilt the world at the state fair and you think you're going to hurl those fried Oreos all over your buddy or you're having a rough Wednesday morning after Taco Tuesday, that's probably the vomiting center doing its thing. Understanding the difference between those two potential triggers for vomiting help us to understand the best treatment. We've heard of things like scopolamine patches and meclizine for certain kinds of vomiting. These can work when the vomiting center is triggered by vestibular issues, but they're ineffective when you're dealing with the CTZ, that chemoreceptor trigger zone. The most potent medications to stop CTZ-mediated vomiting are Procloperazine, that's Compazine, Ondansetron, that's Zofran, and Metoclopramide, that's Reglan. Prochlorperazine, as you know, is a first-generation antipsychotic, so there's lots of uses for it beyond the vomiting patient. But like other first-gen antipsychotics, brief extrapyramidal syndromes, EPS, like akathisia, can happen even with one dose. And with prolonged dosing, more chronic EPS, like tardive dyskinesia, that tongue flapping you've seen sometimes in patients, are possibilities. Prochlorperazine is generally contraindicated in late pregnancy and in heavy doses in late pregnancy. A one-timer for hyperemesis gravidarum in early pregnancy, if you're following the stepwise ACOG approach, is okay. Metoclopramide can also cause EPS on the upside it enhances gastric motility. So in the diabetic patient with gastroparesis, there can be some added benefit with metoclopramide over other antiemetics. We mentioned hyperemesis gravidarum earlier. Let's talk ondansetron. Ondansetron is probably your favorite. It's one of mine. One of the few antiemetics that is less associated with drowsiness. So it's helpful for patients that you're planning to send home. For pregnant women, you might have heard like, hey, there's something there with ondansetron. There's no proven association with cardiac or other serious congenital malformations. Again, consult the ACOG approach to hyperemesis gravidarum for some guidance there. I think a one-timer of a dancitron is not bad. If you're going to be getting into more prolonged use, that's something where you kind of want to know your uh, OBGYNs in your system and kind of see what they think about that and, and go off of that. Because some people have very strong opinions about dancitron in early pregnancy. They definitely do. Um, Mike, I, you know, my answer to all of life's problems at home and at work is compazine, but you know, it's cool. <laughs> we can talk about this other great roundup of drugs here. All three of them, don't forget, can contribute to QT prolongation. So can haloperidol, another first gen antipsychotic that we use a lot for, um, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. So it's a heck of a thing to be treating someone for this, the pukey poopies, um, I think that's like more of a, a you phrase than a me phrase, but you, I promised you I would say pukey poopies. So thank you. Um, 
Yep. <laughs> I think I just choked a little bit on some pukey poopies from saying that. <laughs> um, anyway, it can all of these can throw them in a lethal arrhythmia. And um, especially in patients with polypharmacy or congenital QT prolongation. So if you're going to be giving multiple antiemetics, space them out over time. Consider putting them on a cardiac monitor. If you think someone has cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, consider going with haloperidol early instead of other antiemetics that don't usually help as much so that you're not limiting the patient's exposure, um, excuse me, so that you are limiting the patient's exposure to the QT prolonging drugs. Limit, limit those exposures. Yeah, if you can right. fix it with one drug, then that's the best thing, honestly. Right. All right. So for my topic, I am going to talk again about something controversial. I mean, <laughs> shocker. What's new? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk briefly about Ozempic. I mean, honestly, I think this is fabulous because I want to get down to what, like, what we're really dealing with here and what it means for ER clinicians. First, I would like to remind you that if your friends and family want you to prescribe Ozempic over the holidays as they plan to overeat and gain weight at your house with pies, the answer is no. So don't ask. Unless, of course, you practice primary care outside of the hospital walls and feel confident you won't hurt anyone or get sued or your hospital doesn't mind if you write prescriptions. Anyway, we've done plenty of shows on that. On another note, um, these patients often go to their PCP or a weight loss specialist. I mean, it's better that they follow them anyway for their weight loss. I mean, you're not going to. So, yeah, I actually did a, a prescription for semaglutide yesterday. Um, so I, I, like I said, I'm an emergency medicine and urgent care PA. And so like at my one urgent care practice, we have also taken on patients interested in using semaglutide. Um, and we'll talk about how it's not just a weight loss drug. I was kind of like down in the mouth on this drug initially, but the more I read about it and hear about it, the more I'm kind of like, man, just like put this in the water. I don't know. Mm, okay. Well, since this is a, a, a hot topic, um, I think that we, I think that we need to figure out first, like if you have a patient that comes in with um, a request for this, I've, I've had patients, they've come into the ER. I want a prescription for Ozempic. I've had that. Uh, no, the answer is no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I've also had patients come in with overdoses, which we'll talk about that and misuse of the drug. So as frontline workers, you know, it's like, who do we consult? We could certainly talk to uh, the endocrinologist or internist if we have like a severe complex medical issue involving this medication. Um, but I want to go over a few things first about the med before we talk about the overdose. So Ozempic or semaglutide has been used for some time for patients with type 2 diabetes for a while. Okay. So the reason why people with diabetes have been using this drug is because it also helps with weight loss. And the website says it's not a diet drug, but many people of course are using it as such. So it claims that it lowers A1C. It also claims that it lowers major cardiovascular event risk like stroke and heart attack or death in adults with known heart disease. So the website specifically also mentions side effects and other bad things that can happen. Specifically, it's not for people under 18, so no real pediatric studies, and it's not those for type 1 diabetes. It's also not for those who have a history of pancreatitis, okay? Random, but we'll get to that in a second as to why. Well, what's even more interesting is the huge side effect and safety concerns for this drug. Um, you know, real quick, I think I misspoke a little bit. So Monjuro is actually a uh, terzepatide. It was uh, the Wegovi. That is another trade name beyond Ozempic for semaglutide. But here we go. Um, you know, 
some of these side effects are interesting because if someone comes in and they're saying that they have an overdose, you need to know kind of like what are the implications of an overdose here? Okay, so if they are using this drug and um, they're having some thyroid issues, right? So this drug can cause possible thyroid tumors, including cancer. If they've been on the drug for a long time, ask about lumps or bumps in the neck hoarseness, trouble swallowing, or maybe even dyspnea. Those could be signs of thyroid cancer. Specifically, medullary thyroid cancer is the one that is most implicated. Some other red flags, people with pancreatitis or other pancreas issues or renal issues, um, diabetic retinopathy. Um, be careful of patients who already have those things or maybe developing them in the use of their semaglutide. Um, that's not great. Pregnant women, Breastfeeding women should also not be using this drug. So there are some important high-risk populations to know there. Also can have problems with the gallbladder. It can cause um, a lot of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. The drug can also cause severe abdominal pain or constipation. And certainly for patients that are using it for weight loss, um, they could be abusing it. They could be taking too much, thinking like, oh, I could just take more and maybe I'll lose more weight faster. Um, those patients are not easy to deal with. Well, in terms of overdose, right? Like if someone really gets into their Monjaro, maybe a kid or something like that, and they weren't supposed to be doing it, um, they can have severe hypoglycemia. If this is the case, hey, a poisoning, <laughs> the reason that I don't need to know talks very well is for the because of poison control, right? I can just call one 800 2-2-2-1-2-2-2. I kid, of course. I do need to know talks, but they can be very helpful. Um, they can talk you through uh, overdoses, help you recognize the more serious overdoses, and escalate your concerns appropriately. Um, I call them early whenever there's a concern about um, you know inappropriate exposure to a medication, and they have great resources to follow up. You know. When uh, it comes down to it, though, what are we doing for these patients in terms of my immediate actions here? What am I concerned about? Right. So I wanted to, this is what we're getting to if it's an overdose. So basically, I talked to my friendly toxicology friend, Michael Hyun, who's in Tennessee. Love him. He's a wonderful friend and uh, a great editor on our book. And I just, wonderful guy. So he basically said, look, you know, this can cause nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. It can cause hypoglycemia. Um, and that's the short answer. But what he really, you know, really wanted me to focus on here is that this is a subcutaneous semaglutide, right? And it's one of several types of long-acting GLP-1 receptor agonists. So what we're really doing is looking at those types of overdoses. With There's lots of those types of meds on the market, right? Mm -hmm. Lots of meds like that. And there's not much literature out there, I can tell you right now, but keep in mind that this med can be administered both orally and subcutaneously. So you need to sort of ask the patient, you know, what kind are you on? And then also there are many different brands, as I mentioned, and many different doses. But if you're specifically talking about Ozempic, okay, or semaglutide, the maximum dose is 2.4 milligrams weekly. And that's going to be important when I talk about this case study in a second. So 2.4 milligrams weekly, and um, patients might even do half that dose if they're having trouble uh with that, with the nausea, the vomiting, and the diarrhea. But um, typically people receive uh, quite a bit of weight loss from that dose. Yeah. 
Now, uh, these GLP-1, GLP-1 receptor agonist overdoses, um, how do they work, right? These these analogs of uh, the stimulators of this receptor increase pancreatic beta cell insulin secretion. So we're kind of like we're causing our pancreas to squirt out more insulin. It delays gastric emptying and causes this feeling of fullness, satiety. That's kind of nice. If you overdose it, then we're going to get into, like we keep talking about here, again, the biggest concern are what? GI symptoms, hypoglycemia, and pancreatitis. Those are our biggest uh, consequences of overdose. Right. So it makes sense now why the pancreas, you know, is so involved, of course. But, um, eh, you know, I think the biggest thing is that if you had an underlying issue and you're taking this drug, it can almost exacerbate that. So that's the mm -hmm. problem. So specifically, I was looking at this 2013 study in the Journal of Diabetes Research and General Practice on a case of attempted suicide uh, with the GLP-1 or GLP-1 receptor agonist lira glutide okay so this is another another um kind of offshoot of this particular uh glip one and it's a 33 year old japanese woman with type 2 diabetes and she reported injecting 72 milligrams okay <laughs> sorry i shouldn't laugh about that that's a lot yeah uh so she had really severe gastrointestinal symptoms she took a whole lot um, but what happened was she ended up being monitored and was okay. She actually never even really had significant hypoglycemia. I looked at another toxicology case report in 2013 in the journal Clinical Toxicology, which looked at um, exanatide, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Nailed it, I'm sure. Yeah, which is another GLP-1 um, receptor agonist or GLP-1, um, which is the right way to say it, Mike. Can we say GLP-1? Is it is it acceptable? You know me, Martha, I like to say things a little bit funny sometimes, so uh, I say GLP-1, but I'm sure there's somebody, there's a uh, endo-PA who's screaming at their computer right now, so yeah. I apologize, endo-PA. Yes. So they presented a case of a massive overdose of this drug. 46-year-old woman with a seven-year history of type 2 diabetes was being followed for the overdose of the exanatide, and she freely admitted to injecting three vials of this. And that equated to quite a large amount, almost 90 times the maximum daily dose of that particular drug. And she was on a boatload of other diabetes medications, including metformin. And the patient experienced 24 hours of sustained nausea, during which her blood glucose levels ranged, get this, between 296 and 500. And she was treated um, with a single dose of short-acting insulin for her hyperglycemia. But after 48 hours, she was asymptomatic. She had normal labs and she was discharged. And the author stated that these GLP-1 um, drugs, basically it's a hormone, right? That's secreted in response um, that basically what happens, I don't want to bore people with this, but essentially it, it doesn't really do much in overdose. The hormone itself, it almost has little or or no change um, in your body. So they titled this case report, No Clinical Harm from a Massive Exanatide Overdose, a short report. So it's just That's bonkers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, so like you said, 90 times the maximum daily dose, that right. first lady with the liraglutide, I did the math quickly in my head. That's like a 30 times the appropriate dose for one week. She did it all in one day. So that's like super, frankly, we should be very reassured by this, right? So again, this GLP-1, uh, like peptide, hormone secreted in response to an oral carbohydrate load. 
Uh, as of this recording, it's about two days out from Thanksgiving. We're all going to get a giant oral carbohydrate load, and uh, no one's going down from overdosing it on uh, buns and sweet potatoes in Thanksgiving. Uh, what's cool, too, this hormone, when the glucose gets low, the hormone doesn't work as well. So like that's kind of protective. You know, the body starts dipping in terms of like the the glucose and, and the hormone says, OK, I'm not going to, you know, um, cause problems here. That's different from things like a sulfonylurea overdose, like a glipizide, I think, is one of the trade names there. So like somebody ODs on glipizide, those people are coming into the hospital, you know, yeah. and, and these people are probably coming in, too, because of their severe GI symptoms. But but thankfully, you know, we're not probably going to throw them into the ICU like you might with somebody who is uh, such a severe risk of um, hypoglycemia, like with sulfonuria. So uh, all in all, you've, you've really reassured me. So thank you for that. Yeah. You know, I'm no Ozempic expert. I just want to know, especially if I'm working in triage that day, how much did you take? When did you take it? And then of course, I, I like to run all my overdose cases by an attending who probably um, might be just as confused by Ozempic these days as well, because it's like, well, some people are taking this tiny little dose. And then some of these other people are like, I'm taking 10 and 15 shots. And we're like, well, we're all confused why you're doing this. Like, do we like, well, you know, if, if one shot is better, clearly five is amazing. Right. So <laughs> dose dependent effect on awesomeness. Anyway, so certainly any poisoning or overdose or a patient like this, get your attending involved. It's a fascinating case, certainly can draw up a nice conversation amongst the group and everybody can learn something. I think it's great. So one other thing I wanted to remind you is that if you do have a patient that has a problem with this drug and they're coming in with severe nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea as a side effect, you can report that to the FDA. They want to know. In fact, they ask you to do that. So you can visit fda.gov backslash medwatch. So www.fda.gov backslash medwatch. Or you can call 1-800-FDA-1088. FDA-1088. And that can help them improve and regulate drugs. So certainly um, they don't ask usually for patient information. Um, the Poison Control Center will. That's that's fine. That's HIPAA compliant. But I mean, with the FDA stuff, you can just report single case studies. And I don't know too much about that, Mike. I know the things I'm supposed to report, including measles and some other bad things, but COVID back in the day, yada, yada. But usually that's not the job of the frontline person to report, but you certainly could if you had an interesting case. Yeah, you know, you, you mentioned about how like there's not a lot of literature out there on GLP-1 overdoses. I promise you when we're doing, uh, you know, podcast 360 in about five or 10 years, there's going to be a ton of literature because this medication is exploding right now. So, hey, it might honestly be a good um, case study for you, listener. If you have somebody who has an OD on GLP-1, just to report what happened. And guess what? The patient doesn't have to have a third ear growing out of their forehead or have some sort of terrible outcome to be a good case study. It can be a reassuring one like the ones that you mentioned, Martha. Yeah. So I, I love always learning. I would love feedback about this. It's it's certainly an interesting topic. And um, I'm going to definitely try to do some more research. Yeah. Nice. Well, lastly, it's our oral contrast segment where we get into all the nooks and crannies of a topic. Let's talk about hearing loss. Now, I know it doesn't feel super sexy in terms of other things we may deal with in the ED. Wait, what? I can't. What? <laughs> I, I said hearing loss, Martha. Hearing oh. loss. Oh, let me put my earphone back on. Okay. There All right. Go. Nice there job. All right. Um, that sounds like a sudden hearing loss. We'll talk about that in a second. You know, especially if there's no obvious focal neurodeficits, 
ear stuff is probably something that we're going to see emergency medicine PAs and MPs. So we need to be the experts in the ED about picking up the subtle emergencies associated with hearing loss. And there really are some true emergencies when it comes to hearing loss that we need to be able to diagnose and immediately treat to minimize the odds of permanent disability or even mortality. Yeah. So one of the things that's important to learn about your hearing loss patient is how suddenly this has developed. Is this something that's chronic and has gradually progressed over the course of weeks or months? If so, and they're coming in just because it's not getting better or it's because they're developing a new symptom like balance issues or facial problems or pain or weakness, or is this hearing loss more acute? Like they woke up and they noticed they couldn't hear in one ear and their hearing really took a nosedive over the last two to three days. It's it's hard to ask that question sometimes of like a person with, you know, weeks or months of symptoms. And, you know, like you the the, the phrase I used to use was like, uh, so why'd you come into the ER today? And after I had a talking to from my ED director, they were like, figure out a different way to say that. And so what Absolutely. I say is, you know, <laughs> I say, look, you know, are you here because it's just not getting better? Or did something change recently? And so in the end, you get to the answer you want, but the patient doesn't feel like, um, you know, oh, this person's disregarding my issue. You know, uh, we mentioned, you mentioned facial problems or balance issues, Martha. See if the patient endorses any other hearing related issues like, you know, ear pain, discharge, tinnitus, other noises in the ears. Is there, a, is there a history of direct trauma or instrumentation like with Q-tips or pencils or safety pins? How about exposure to loud noise, pressure changes like with flying or diving, or maybe some new medications they took recently? All these things can be helpful in narrowing your differential on somebody with hearing loss. Yeah, so of course, one of the first things you're going to do is physically examine the ear. Actually, this is one of those exams where, again, I like to ask a lot of questions before I do the exam, yeah. because if you're like mucking around in their ear, like they're sensitive, you know, I, I just really appreciate that face-to-face -face conversation and not physically examining and asking all my questions at the same time. Now, of course, there's times when you need to do that, but I've really, really changed my practice in the last couple of years to have a two to three minute, really intense facial conversation, eye to eye, sitting down and then doing the exam. Of course, I'm like, does this hurt? Okay. I see this. All right. I'm going to pull this back. Yeah. You're going to you know, have a conversation while you're doing your exam, but we're looking inside of the ear, but we've looked outside of the ear, right? Let's look outside of the ear first. What do we see? Is there is there anything going on with the ear where it's like sitting funny, sticking out, um, swelling, redness, anything behind the ear, mastoid tenderness, and then look in the ear canal and look for any masses or diffuse swelling in the canal, maybe some lesions to suggest Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. Um, is there any cerumen? Is there any initial sign of otitis? Um and finally, look at the TM. Are there any perforations, redness, swelling, uh, serous or separative effusion? Uh, and if you look carefully uh, to the posterior and superior TM, do you see any white debris that suggests a cholesteoma, right? That's a mouthful, cholesteoma. Hopefully, you see something that seals the deal on the diagnosis. The harder part is when you look in the eardrum expecting to see a bunch of earwax or the wisp of a Q-tip and you see nothing at all. And the patient says, yeah, well, I still can't hear that ear. Let's go way back to when we learned about hearing and the Weber 
and Renee tests. Let's skip the Renee test for now. As you recall, the Weber test can be helpful in distinguishing between conductive and sensorineural hearing loss. Conductive hearing loss is when something is interfering with the transfer of sound waves through the outer and middle ear. Sensorineural hearing loss is when the inner ear and those organs of hearing have been damaged by something. Traditionally, the Weber test is where you place a ringing tuning fork against the center of someone's forehead and ask them if they hear the ringing louder in one ear or the other. Now, my memory device here is Weber goes to wax, the W's go together, and away from acoustic neuroma. The A's go together. Basically, if it's a conductive hearing loss, like with a bunch of earwax balled up in there, the tuning fork is heard louder in the bad ear. So if the left ear is the problem ear and it's from a conductive hearing loss, the tuning fork is heard louder in the bad ear, the left ear. Things like eustachian tube dysfunction causing air trapping, uh, poor tim mobility from that uncomplicated otitis externa where there's like a bunch of gunk in the ear, maybe a perforated eardrum, even that cluskyotoma would be causes of conductive hearing loss. Okay. However, if we've got a sensor neural hearing loss in one ear, the tuning fork is heard louder in the unaffected ear, the good ear, an acoustic neuroma, also known as a vestibular schwannoma, say that a couple times uh, for maximum goodness, is the most favored uh, cause of sensorineural hearing loss just because it's a benign tumor of the brain and the sound would go away from that. So if the left ear was the problem ear, the patient would hear the tuning fork louder in the right ear, the, the good ear, so to speak. Yeah. And if you didn't get all that, you can rewind and listen again. I mean, it's a nice refresher. Meanwhile, I'm going to show you my tuning oh. forks. Look at all the different shapes and sizes I have. Okay. This this is actually look up look at this. Isn't that crazy? Here, let's let's listen real quick. Ready? Oh boy. Okay, we got that one. Let's say we got this one. It's really high pitch. And then we got this guy. I'm gonna start my own little tuning fork band over here. But if you don't have one and you're like, wow, I don't even know where to find one. Don't worry. You don't need to go uprooting your closet. There's something that you can do called the hum test. So Mike, tell us about the hum test. Okay. Well, so um, you get the patient in a quiet place, which step one, that might take a good half yeah. an hour to an hour in your ER. Have them hum, ideally with a low-pitched hum. Mm, and that can be used to generate a noise that your brain hears like our Weber test. There's some vibration involved and such. The results of the hum, again, are the same as the Weber test. The hum is heard louder in an ear with conductive hearing loss. So it's louder in the bad ear if it's conductive hearing loss. If you hear it louder in the good ear, the one without hearing loss, that suggests a sensorineural hearing loss. And we're going to have, you know, some studies that suggest that this has been validated, small population of patients, but still validated. Um, that'll be on the website. That's again, twoview.fireside.fm. All right. So we already know how to deal with the station tube dysfunction, otitis media, and uncomplicated otitis externa. We'll skip that. What are some signs that the patient has malignant otitis externa, an ear canal infection spreading out of the ear? Question, hmm. especially in the setting of like an immunocompromised condition or a more toxic looking patient, maybe with trismus, facial weakness, decreased facial sensation, or a patient who has failed typical treatments for an otitis externa. These patients would benefit from a CT with IV contrast to assess for extension of that otitis externa, which may require weeks 
or of antibiotics or even an admission, depending on how bad it is, if that is the ultimate diagnosis. I think of that almost like, you know, we're giving weeks of antibiotics for somebody who has like acute bacterial prostatitis. Like it takes time for those antibiotics to really get into where it needs to get into for patients with these conditions. Well, if there's no signs of otitis externa, but we've got gradually progressive sensorineural hearing loss, again, over weeks to months, accompanied by some new neuro findings of facial weakness or pain, um, then it could be an acoustic neuroma, that vestibular schwannoma. I just wanted to say schwannoma again, or a meningioma. That could be the culprit too. If there's progressive neuro deficit, a non-contrast CT in the ED could find a mass and get your patient going on the right pathway. An MRI might be more sensitive, but can probably done as an outpatient, especially if there's no progressive worsening of symptoms. I want to kind of like the main reason for me doing this, this uh, topic is this subtle condition where our history and physical exam can really save the day. The condition is called sudden sensorineural hearing loss. And it's just what it sounds like. The patient wakes up and all of a sudden they can't hear or it gets rapidly worse over a couple of days, two or three. And you have a high suspicion based on your amazing physical exam, that it's sensorineural and not conductive. There's often tinnitus with sudden sensorineural hearing loss. Some patients can also have vertigo, ear pain, some paresthesias in the area. These patients have a median age of 40, younger than patients commonly afflicted by stroke, which and also can cause some, you know, um, vestibular um, issues here. Still, consider a stroke in the right setting, even for younger patients. Was there some increased risk factor, like they have AFib, there was neck trauma, or chiropractic, but I repeat myself. Anyways, and rule that out adequately. If there are eye symptoms, maybe this patient has a rare inflammatory condition called Kogan syndrome. Look that up on up to date. Ask about meds too. Aspirin, especially an overdose, loop diuretics like furosemide, aminoglycoside antibiotics like gentamicin, especially, but also your humble clindamycin, erythromycin, azithromycin, those are all aminoglycosides, or even certain chemo drugs are ototoxic. Yeah, this is a lot. I mean, it's so much more than we thought we were going to talk about with hearing loss. Um, when you first said you wanted to talk about hearing loss and I'm like, I want to talk about penis pain. I'm like, Mike's segment's going to be really boring, but <laughs> I don't know. I think more folks would come to the ER for penis pain than hearing loss. That's just me as an owner operator. I'm coming to the ER for penis pain. That's for sure. <laughs> no, I get it. I told you, I just had a patient that walked up to the desk and said, I'm here for hearing loss. And the nurse was like, get out of here, go to urgent care. And oh. I'm like, no, no, no. I want to talk to him. I want to talk to this patient. But anyway, um, I think regardless of etiology, if you think the patient has a sudden sensorineural hearing loss, the treatment is likely steroids, preferably given in the first, um, uh, given for two weeks. And no, still- just, could, Yeah, just in the first two weeks. You just want to give yeah. it early. Yeah, yeah, you want to give it early. And the dosing may be- uh, dependent on a lot of different things, but typically prednisone 60 milligrams for 10 days with no taper is safe. And eh, I tend to do a few shorter days. It depends. It depends on what the diagnosis um, really is here. If it is truly sensorial hearing loss, you know, I do get ENT involved. Okay. Obviously they are the specialists. We want to ask them. Um, it's not easy to get an appointment with them. Uh, sometimes because it's just difficult to get outpatient appointments. So see if you can chat with one of the residents or one of um, the attendings that might already be in the department doing something else. Um, speaking of ENTs, they really should see these patients within 24 hours of the diagnosis of the sudden sensorial 
uh, sensorineural hearing loss. Um, because when you're even with the rapid administration of steroids and prompt ENT referral, the patient can still have permanent hearing loss. So really formal auto um, audio tests for these patients should be done within two weeks uh, when they have the hearing loss. So I think it's just important you get these people on the books and seen and understood. Another thing that can be done if there's a reason to not give prednisone 60 milligrams for 10 days is you can inject some dexamethasone into their TM. Uh, I don't know about you, but something I'm going to let the ENTs do. So one more reason to get ENT involved in case that is something you're interested in this patient getting. But yeah, the key here is ENT uh, in front of this patient within 24 hours of your diagnosis, because there's just a lot of things that can be going on. As we know, like the acute presentation, something acutely happening is often more concerning the ED. So this is different than just like, oh yeah, I can't hear for a long time. The acute, sense, the sudden sense neural hearing loss, that's a big deal. That is e, uh, you know, emergent consultation with ENT, rapid follow-up. And like, you know, if like, you know, Martha and I were, we're kind of spoiled in some ways, you know, like we have just like the breadth of consultants that can some see our patients whenever. But like, I remember those days working in community emergency medicine where it's like, I barely had a urologist or an ophthalmologist on call, you know? So some of you don't have ENT. Um, it may be worth talking to affiliated hospitals that have an ENT or, you know, knowing your ENTs in the community and saying, Hey, you know, maybe you don't have to come in to see this person in ED, but they've got to come see you sometime yeah. soon. How can we make that happen? Making Absolutely. that kind of like telephonic connection. Again, just like with the drugs, like the Ozempic overdose or the semaglutide overdose, you might think like, this isn't my job to like arrange these office appointments. But but in the situation, um, this is kind of what's indicated. These people can have permanent hearing loss uh, for your own sake, frankly. Yeah. You want ENT to see this person very soon. Well, I, you know, I got two other things to say. I think that we need to... I'm always excited about patients, but I think we all as the spirit of emergency medicine here need to get re-excited. We need to, we need to light the fire of excitement in our jobs again. And I'm telling you, one of the things that has helped me is actually physically getting excited about a patient. So how long do we really spend on the phone with consultants? Not that long. Maybe we consult a couple people a day. The next time you call a consultant, why don't you say like, yo, I have a really cool case, something I haven't seen in a while. And actually, I think I, you know, I have some questions for you, the expert. Like, I want to, let's chat about this. Or like, if you have a, a hospital um, admission, you know, the hospital is like, your call number 284. We will call you back in 18 hours. So it's like, why don't you be like, yo, I have this really interesting patient that did an Ozempic overdose. And they're like, Oh, you can't really overdose on that, can you? Be like, well, I was just reading about this. And, you know, so I think getting your your consultants excited about your patient and not bored. Yeah, we are professional. Yes, you know, we have to get the job done. But like, this is still a really interesting job. And And don't discount the fact that people say interesting and weird things to us. And yeah, there, you can have a little humor with your consultants at times. Um, good luck with the surgeons and uh, the cardio team. But um, if it's orthopedics, get busy. Like, you know, be like, yo, this guy's leg was just like flying all over the place. Like, yeah. anyway, I'm going to. And the second thing I want to say is that I'm going to put a Venn diagram in our liner notes about the types of hearing loss. And I love Venn diagrams, right? The two circles that cross in the middle. 
So remember, sensorineural hearing loss, aging, noise damage, drug side effects, auditory tumors, blasts, explosions, those types of things. And then sort of the um, the conductive side of this, conductive issues, fluid, foreign objects, allergies, ruptured eardrums, right? Impacted earwax and the mixed stuff that might be sensorineural, it might be conductive, genetic disorders, infections, head trauma. So really cool way to look at hearing loss. It's a good point. You know, like I kind of brought this up as like, it's either a sensorineural or a conductive but yeah, like to your point, you know, some of these things are mixed. And so maybe it's another reason to get ENT involved is like this person's got stuff from column A and B. I'm having a hard time teasing this out here. Help me out, ENT. You're my yeah. only hope, right? Okay, yeah. well, let's get to our two-view trivia question. Okay, our question from the last podcast was this. The American College of Emergency Physicians, or ASEP, just wrapped up its most recent scientific assembly. I was really excited to see a fellow PA was among one of the presenters there. The PA presented on physician assistant intubation in the emergency department. Our two-part trivia question is this. Who was the PA and where does he practice? And that's Fred Wu. Fred Wu practices out of UC San Francisco, your neck of the woods there, Martha. And you have a winner for us, I understand. Yeah, we had a tie here. Peggy McNeil. Uh, she's a nurse practitioner in Northern California, and she also is a winner. Very good. Yeah. So, so new question. Do you want to read it? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel privileged here. OK, so um, in this two part question, we're asking you Peyronie's disease is named after what? slash who and approximately what dear year was it first identified in the penis of male patients again how did they name peroni's disease and approximately what year was it first identified email us your two-part answer in addition to anyone you want to give a shout out to as well as any sort of feedbacks or comments about our episode uh to twoviewcast at gmail.com that's our email address twoviewcast at gmail.com that's the number twoviewcast at gmail.com that's our show uh, more information on the original emergency medicine bootcamp which are still running by the way in 2024 just in december we also have the the next one coming up in just a few short weeks from the time of this recording so excited to hang out with you in person again martha that's coming up this december next december and also again coming back we're running it back the advanced emergency medicine boot camp in july 10th through 12th 2024 mark your calendars now um you, uh, you can hear about the emergency medicine and acute care course, which are also retooling as well. Any of these courses and more are available at the Center for Medical Education website. That's www.ccme.org, www.ccme.org. Um, so yeah, uh, more, I'm sure as the weeks go on, we're going to have more announcements about different courses coming up. Thanks for listening. You could subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Search for Two View Emergency. That's the number Two View Emergency. It'll come right up. Ratings help us climb the charts so that other clinicians get some Two View goodness like you have today. If you like YouTube and you want to count does Martha have more tuning forks or guitars? You can see that. You can look at my fetching New York's Giants hoodie. Go Tommy DeVito, MVP. Um, you can search for um, the Center for Modular Education on uh, YouTube. Our CCMELive.org will point you towards the Center 
for medical education website on YouTube, and you can catch the video version of our podcast. Don't forget that website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers and sites we refer to. That's twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple. Well, thanks again for tuning in. Oh, I see what you did there. It's nice. <laughs> I've been waiting my whole life, Mike, to say that. Thank you for tuning in. Brilliant. Friends and EM. So share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us at The Two View today. Have a good day and a great shift. <laughs>